Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a very exciting episode. Joining me today is Dr. Elizabeth Matuzzi of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Lizzie's latest research unpacks the ways low- and moderate-income communities are vulnerable to climate risks. We'll also hear about the role of housing insecurity in communities' climate vulnerabilities. Lizzie's research also uncovers awareness levels among organizations dealing with climate risk and what impacts they perceive are affecting their communities. For you adaptation practitioners out there, this is important research with many implications for on-the-ground adaptation work that you do. Okay, upcoming episodes. We'll discover how Colorado is approaching climate adaptation. Also coming on is Dr. Michael Mendez from the University of California at Irvine, where we'll discuss how climate change will drive migration from Mexico northward, and also the impacts of climate change on the LGBTQ community and ways those groups are responding. And I'm collaborating with the Natural Resources Defense Council and the Anthropocene Alliance on an episode where we talk with community members impacted firsthand by major flooding events and what actions they are taking in response. Good stuff on the way. Hey, Adapters, I got a cool new resource for you. My college days are far behind me, but I still love learning and have an insatiable curiosity. Don't get me started about string theory. So that's why I'm really enjoying Wondrium. I just finished listening to a program on Wondrium from the great courses called The Big Bang and Beyond, Exploring the Early Universe. I'm a sucker for all things cosmology. I mean, it's the history of the universe we're talking about. Okay, absorb a few facts. At a hundred billionth of a second after the Big Bang, the universe was at a quadrillion degrees. Yes, that's hot. So this program is made up of multiple episodes covering everything from the age of the universe to other universes. It's a deep dive on these subjects without the pressure of schoolwork. Thank goodness. I love that I can learn about anything and everything on Wondrium. History. Art, literature, cooking, you name it, they got it. Imagine a YouTube channel, but with all educational, useful, and exciting content. Not just funny cat video rabbit holes. With unlimited ad-free access, all for a fraction of the cost of a college course, and with no homework or grades. I got a C in limnology in graduate school, and I'm still bitter. And of course, there is a Wondrium app. Watch or listen along, just like a podcast. I just took a journey to the beginning of the universe on a drive to visit my aunt in Santa Fe. The audio option is really useful. You like audiobooks? Wondrium has got you covered. And in case you're wondering how this is related to climate change, well, yes, they cover that too. They have a new documentary and series on climate science called Solving for Zero, and that's coming in April. Watch or have a listen. So check it out. I know you'll love exploring Wondrium courses and programs. Sign up now through my special URL to start your free trial. Yes, they created a special link just for America Adapts. Go to wondrium.com slash adapts. There's a link in my show notes. Look down. It's right there. Get your learning on today. W-O-N-D-R-I-U-M dot com slash adapts. Definitely check it out. Okay, now let's learn about some new community development research with Dr. Elizabeth Matsuzzi of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Hey, Adapters, welcome back. Today, we have an exciting episode. Joining me is Dr. Elizabeth Matuzzi. Lizzie is a senior researcher in community development at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. Hi, Lizzie. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Doug. Great to be here. 
you know, let's talk about the Federal Reserve for a moment. You were here. We're going to talk about the survey research that you've been doing. But I think for a lot of people out there, they really don't understand what the Federal Reserve Bank is all about. And you're there at San Francisco. So maybe you could just really briefly give us that high level view of what the, the reserve is all about. Sure. I'm here in the Community Development Department at the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco. As you mentioned, I'm a researcher. And the reason I'm here talking to you on an adaptation podcast is the Federal Reserve is really interested in understanding climate-related risk. That's everything from how climate-related impacts are going to affect the economy to on the community development team, we're interested in understanding how groups that have traditionally not been able to fully participate in the economy, that includes low and moderate income communities and communities of color, are being impacted by climate risks and how that might affect their economic stability, their ability to work, their ability to participate in the economy. Folks might have heard of the Fed Board of Governors and Fed Chair back in D.C., but there's also 12 Fed branches around the country. And the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco covers nine Western states and Pacific territories. So we have a huge area that we serve in both in terms of geography and population and also kind of the diversity of the economy and also the climate risks that folks face out here. Okay, so how long have you been there at the Fed? I've been here since 2017. I mean, we're going to get to the survey and some of the other things, but just I do like to kind of dig into a little, the background of my guest. And, you know, how did you end up working at the Federal Reserve? I mean, what, what's your academic background, your sort of professional background? Yeah, before I was at the Fed, I spent seven years at Berkeley. I was a PhD student and a postdoc, and I was working more on the climate mitigation side and trying to understand the relationship between land use and regional governance and regional sustainability. You know, I was looking at a climate law in California that some of your guests will probably know about, SB 375, which really tried to link up how land use planning particularly housing, is part of regional transportation planning. So basically trying to make sure that as they plan transportation investments in the state, that they're also doing transit-oriented development so that sprawl doesn't kind of overtake those, you know, emissions goals. You know, I looked at how metropolitan planning organizations worked with cities and counties to try to encourage them to plan for denser housing. And then I also, in my postdoc, looked at at federal sustainability planning. So there was a program called the HUD Sustainable Communities Initiative, and it had this regional planning grant that kind of, for the first time, gave an incentive for regional agencies to work with cities and counties on broader definition of sustainability. Maybe it's just academics who define sustainability this way, but both in terms of social equity, racial equity, regional economies, you know, can people afford transportation? Can they afford housing, near jobs, and uh, also the environmental piece? So I kind of, that's what I did immediately before joining the Fed and turning more to the kind of adaptation and resilience side of the work. I also, in my past, interned at the California Air Resources Board. So the folks who are like passing California's climate laws got to work up close with them as a a student and also spent a little bit of time at Green for All, which is a climate and racial justice advocacy organization. Took a, you know, mostly academic path here, but very excited to kind of be a researcher in a policy space. 
Okay, so you, you mentioned at Berkeley, you mainly were on the mitigation side and sustainability. I know there's sort of overlap, but when you went to the Federal Reserve, was it clear when you started and you, when you took the position that you would be pivoting directly into adaptation or did that sort of come after a little bit of time? When I started here, our team in community development was very focused and, and we still are on healthy communities and kind of healthy and resilient community. When I started, we were participating in an initiative called SPARC, which some of your listeners will be aware of, the Strong, Prosperous, and Resilient Climate Community or Climate Challenge that was, in my mind, it was some of the alumni of the the HUD SCI experience who were putting together a philanthropy-driven cohort of about six metro areas to do climate and racial justice work. And then it ended up having a big focus on anti anti-displacement efforts, because it turns out, and I'm previewing what came out of the survey, there's a big link between folks' housing stability and their financial stability and their ability to adapt. So that's a big part of our work and was kind of the main set of focus when I got here. But then we also, around the time I started or early in my time here, I worked with um, your frequent guest, Jesse Keenan, who came and did a visiting scholar period of time with our team. And together, we looked at climate adaptation and resilience and the Community Reinvestment Act, which I don't want to go into too much detail on the the report we did at, at that point. But basically, the idea was, you know, one of the reasons we have a community development function at the Fed is that the Community Reinvestment Act from the 70s, which was trying to address lending and mortgage discrimination at the time, requires that banks invest in the communities that they take deposits from. And there's a lending, investment, and service tests. And, and sometimes that, that takes the form of grant making. Or sometimes it's investment that they get a return on. But, you know, banks have these assessment areas that they have to make sure they're participating in making sure that low and moderate income communities have access to financial services and other beneficial things. It could be a grocery store, you know, something like that, that serves a low income community. But there really hadn't been a lot of conversation about how CRA connected to climate adaptation. And I think our assessment unofficially, and maybe this would be a good time to stop and say that I'm speaking for myself and and not for the Fed today, that low-income communities and communities of color face climate risks, but there hadn't necessarily been any connection with the CRA previously. We did a couple things at that point in time, which was first we looked and said, is there an overlap even between you know places that are experiencing climate risks? And we used a, a rough measure of had they experienced a federally declared disaster in a, a county where there were low-income census tracts. And we found that, in fact, there is a big overlap between low-income communities and the areas where CRA activity is supposed to be taking place. And then we also, you know, we interviewed folks at the Fed and the FDIC and the OCC who are actually on the supervision side and asked them, have you ever heard of, you know, not just disaster-related activities for CRA, because there has been disaster recovery work as part of CRA, but are any of those recovery efforts part of transformative adaptation and resilience, or have you ever seen just plain adaptation work that helps low-income communities that, that banks have 
put in for consideration for CRA credit. And there really wasn't anything at the time, but there, you know, as part of CRA modernization, there's been a lot of conversation around whether the guidance for CRA should have something more explicit, just saying that it's even possible to do adaptation work under a a CRA framework. And that's still ongoing. And I'm obviously not commenting on that officially, but that was kind of the beginning of our team's work on climate and very much focused on risk and adaptation for low-income communities and communities of color. So before we start talking about this new survey, I I do, you've sort of explained it already and all this sort of explanation and the sort of background, but I just want to make it crystal clear. You know, I I talked to the Federal Reserve before, but it's been a while and a little bit different topic was with some of the guests that we had on that, but just community development, it's what you do. And it's obviously the focus area and the different partners that you have, but I don't think a lot of people, and I'm speaking for myself when I say, I don't think a lot of people realize it as such a cohesive sort of area and sector and discipline. And maybe you could give really briefly, just, it is this whole area that you, people are focusing on and it's this template or this umbrella, uh, a way of in, engaging with the community. Could you give just a little bit of background on it? Yeah, I think there's, we're obviously called the the community development department, but what is that? I think there's community development with a, a capital C and a capital D, you know, people who are practitioners in the field working with low-income communities and communities of color who would actually use that term to describe themselves. I think, you know, that's basically folks like affordable housing developers, community-based organizations, particularly those who are working on housing and local economic development and workforce development. I think some social service providers would also consider themselves kind of part of the community development universe. For the purposes of our work on our team and also the way we defined our population for this survey, I think of community development as anyone whose work touches low-income communities and communities of color and impacts their lives. And I know that's a much broader definition, but that starts to encompass, you know, I think more of your listeners, people who work in city and regional planning, people whose work is disaster management or infrastructure, who may not have a specific anti-poverty mandate, but the decisions they make, the policies that they're carrying out have equity implications and can have a positive impact on economic and racial equity. Perfect. I just wanted to sort of, you know, set that background because I, I, don't think a lot of people necessarily when you say community development they might just it might mean different things to different people so i just wanted to sort of set the stage there at the risk of repeating too much of what Jesse and my colleague Ian Galloway said when they came on a couple of years ago to talk about that first CRA and climate adaptation um, report that we did at the time i think for us at the Fed, community development is particularly, it's those groups I mentioned, nonprofits and those folks, but it's also the financial institutions that work in low-income communities and communities of color. So both the for-profit and the nonprofit financial institutions, there's something called community development financial institutions or CDFIs that folks will probably be familiar with. And they do a lot of the on the ground lending in low income communities that's mission driven and is not necessarily more risky than what regular financial institutions, for-profit financial institutions do. It's just, it's higher touch, it's lower volume. And in being sort of mission-driven, there's there's just a lot more moving parts. So the, you know, it's all of those different folks on the ground in those communities. 
All right, let's talk about the survey. And if you could give the, even the name of the survey. And, and I just want to start off with what is the survey about? And then why did you do the survey? And you sort of talked a little bit about that. But just let, let's just kind of jump into that. We're obviously not going to go and break down the, the results kind of a page by page kind of thing, but just giving people a sense of what you were trying to do with it. And then we're going to talk about sort of the results and what it might mean for other people outside the Federal Reserve. But yeah, could you just kind of break it down for us? Great. Fast forward a couple of years from where our team started out with our climate adaptation and resilience work. There's a much larger focus on climate-related risk, as I mentioned, at the Fed in general, and particularly at the San Francisco Fed. You know, I think there's been, as you know, we've heard about on, on the show, a bunch of headline-grabbing disasters. Suddenly, you have people who weren't necessarily working on climate-related issues before, I think particularly in the community development field, who suddenly have started, you know, we've heard this in, in conversations, have started seeing this more as impacting their work and impacting their communities. And, you know, we've had a, a number of, of events over the last couple of years where we try to explore figuring out how the community development field is reacting to climate risk and how they're addressing that in the communities they serve. But we wanted to do that in a slightly more formal way. So the survey is called Climate-Related Risks Facing Low and Moderate Income Communities and communities of color. It's a little bit long, but we, <laughs> we did this last year with the intention of really finding out who folks in the community development field, how are they feeling about climate-related risks to the communities they serve across the Western U.S., across the different sectors that that we think of as being part of the community development field. So nonprofits, philanthropy, local government, financial institutions, you know, university partners, a real broad swath of folks whose work touches the lives of low-income communities and communities of color and find out not just what types of, of climate shocks and stresses are they seeing, because that's going to be different everywhere. In one, one state, it's going to be fires and another state, it's going to be drought or, you know, there's going to be an overlap. But what do they see as the exacerbating factors that make it hard for traditionally marginalized communities to react and to adapt and to be resilient? And what do they see as kind of the, the obstacles to doing resilience work in those communities? And just are they even paying attention to this? You know, are the assumptions we have that, that everyone is thinking about this now even correct? Okay, so you sent it out and maybe you could I'm trying to, you don't necessarily have to list every group, but just the total number of respondents. And so people have a sense of like who you were ultimately serving in the sort of the regions. So I know you, it's all these Western states, but some like states, I guess, were more representative than others and probably closer to population and such. But like who was responding and like, were you happy with the response? Yes. Yeah, so we sent this out through our team's network and we encouraged the people that we sent it to to share it with their networks. So it's a convenient sample. It's what you call a snowball sample, but it really helps us understand the, the networks that we do research and engagement work with, because that's kind of the core thing our team does is kind of bring data to the CRA conversation and the community development conversation and help those folks uh, connect with each other to help generate investment and partnerships that can support community development work. So we were actually really excited to receive over 250 responses. We had 253. And 
they were from across the nine Western states that we serve. So Alaska, Arizona, California, Hawaii, Idaho, Nevada, Oregon, Utah, Washington, and also Pacific territories, American Samoa, Guam, Northern Mariana Islands. Yeah, like you said, there's obviously a weight towards the bigger states like California because there's just larger population, more organizational density there. But a number of organizations cover multiple states, and we were really excited to have pretty solid coverage across our geographies. Want to dig into the survey. When you've sent this out, and obviously there are questions related to climate risk that they needed to answer, do you have a sense, even as you were developing the survey, how these kind of groups that you, you would think would respond to this think about climate change? Because I, I guess what I would get at is that some groups maybe think they know more about climate change than they necessarily do. And I and I even say that for maybe a technical or there's a sort of a general way of like a climate change. It's this threat out there. But when you were developing the survey and you're kind of sending it out, did you feel pretty confident the respondents were going to be able to, I guess, answer climate related questions in a way that they were actually familiar with it? Yeah. So I think we were assuming that it, we could be getting responses that reflected anything from a very strong level of knowledge, because there are a lot of community development organizations that do have an explicit focus on climate. And about a third of our respondents said that one of their primary organizational focus areas was climate or environmental justice. But we also were just open to the idea that, you know, they're Maybe they're working at the food bank. Maybe they are a local nonprofit lender or for-profit lender. And this just isn't really on their radar except for what they've been seeing in the headlines. So we were actually fairly surprised and you know interested to hear that about 90% of our respondents said that climate risk is something that's affecting the communities they serve right now, not something they see as being out there in the future, but majority of them, 80 something percent, 81% said that the communities that they serve are not well prepared for climate risks impacts. And, uh, you know, about half of them said that their organization, 51% that said that their organization isn't well prepared for climate impacts on how they do their work. So, you know, there was broad awareness and most of them said they understand what the climate risks are, you know, whether that's fire, flood, drought, 83% said they understand what climate risks are, but only about 40% of them, 39% of them exactly said that um, their organization is actually working to address climate risk for communities. You can see this both ways because if it's not part of their mission, then that's not necessarily something they're going to be working on. But I think from the responses we got and some of the comments, more and more community development professionals understand that this is something that affects folks' basic needs and affects, affects their livelihoods and you know, their ability to be housed. So I think folks are seeing it, uh, climate adaptation and resilience and the risks associated with climate shocks and stresses as being more connected to their work, whereas I'm not sure, you know, they would have five years ago or more. All right. So, that, and I'm looking at your summary results too. That's on the numbers that you've just picked out. And I just think it's very interesting that, you know, you'd mentioned over one third, 39% said their organization is working on climate related risks, but then 
90% they're being impacted already. And then 81% feel that their communities they serve are not well prepared. And so there's there's quite a huge gap there between 39% and 90%. And I, I, I'm assuming the Fed, you're not there to get prescriptive anytime soon or if at all. And so that, it just seems to me that there's an interesting follow-up that those groups that think they're being impacted by climate change, are they aligning that properly with the resources that they're seeking? And there's all sorts of ways that if they truly feel like they're not capable of addressing it and then making that assessment in the first place. Hope that makes sense. And it's just, you know, it takes a certain amount of sophisticated know-how to necessarily to say, okay, this is how we're going to do adaptation within our particular sector or organization. And if you're not doing it at all, are people just kind of winging it out there? Yeah. What we do is we help try to bring data to these conversations. We have a whole focus area on our team on um, kind of understanding, mapping climate risk and how it overlaps with vulnerable communities. And we also are here to bring together folks from different sectors who might not have an opportunity to communicate otherwise. And and I'm thinking specifically, you know, across the financial sector versus the nonprofit sector, the philanthropic sector, we perform a convening role. So other than the the researchers on our team, we have an engagement team or a field team. And they are the ones who kind of go out in these particular regions, Pacific Northwest or Northern California, Southern California, or in Nevada and Arizona. And they try to figure out, you know, what are people working on and, you know, how can we help catalyze those efforts without, as you said, being prescriptive about policies. So we are definitely not here. We don't fund anyone's work. We don't, we're not prescriptive about what technologies particularly on the climate mitigation side. And we're, we're not even prescriptive about what policies on the climate adaptation and resilience side. So we it's really our job to lift up what kind of is perhaps going on in another geography that folks might not be aware of and to help foster the connections that can, can help folks do adaptation and resilience work and kind of bring data to that conversation. I just had Lori Schumann on and talked about affordable housing and climate change. And one of the questions I asked her is that there are a lot of affordable housing activists out there, and many of them aren't even thinking about climate change. That's what her group does. That's what she does. And there's increasingly, a, it's so relevant, but I just wondering that too. And these groups, was there any anecdotal feedback that you got from the respondents saying, well, why are you asking us about climate risk? We've got other bigger fish to fry here? Was that, or were they so targeted in your network that they would probably going to know something and be pods about climate change the first place? See what I'm getting at though, is like within community development, there's probably a lot of people saying, well, we don't have to worry about this. Yeah. First, Lori's wonderful. And we've had her speak at Financial Innovations Roundtable that we hosted last year. And I'm really looking forward to listening to that episode of the podcast. I've not done so yet. Um, (laughs) But the, you know, I, it's a good point you make of, you know, do people see this as part of their work? And I think that because of the makeup of the community development field, we had a lot of housers respond to the survey. And I think it's something that they're thinking about when we asked what are the things that are exacerbating climate risk for low-income communities and communities of color that you serve on the ground. The biggest thing that came up was a, a lack of 
of housing options in resilient areas. So I think people in the field are making that connection between the displacement risk that people face, between the loss of housing stock in very dramatic fashion from fires in the West in recent years and the work that they're doing. I think, you know, they make the connection between long-term structural housing shortage and a lack of housing that's affordable to people at all income levels, a lack of both market rate and subsidized housing, and the fact that more people are living close to the the wildland urban interface and are displaced when there's a loss of housing stock that then, you know, bumps other people into, you know, maybe a, a rental unit that they own or into, you know, other housing that then someone is displaced from or someone can't afford. So I think people are making that connection. But there is also, there was also, you know, in our results, people saying that the the other biggest factor besides a lack of housing and resilient areas that, that makes it hard for marginalized communities to adapt is just a lack of savings. And when we asked, you know, what are the barriers to policy action in these areas, it was a lack of people being able to focus on this issue because they're trying to meet their basic economic needs, like putting a roof over their head or putting food on their table. So, you know, at the risk of saying that adaptation is kind of everything and, and nothing, I think that that housing and wealth building, if you will, are adaptation issues. And I think the people whose jobs are primarily focused on um, serving low-income communities, I think they are starting to see the connection with adaptation in their work in a, in a much bigger way. But I think I would also maybe encourage the people who their job title does have adaptation in it to be looking around in their communities, you know, who are the people who are, you know, may not have climate in their job title or their organization's name, but are working with low-income communities. I think it goes both ways in terms of awareness. And we had kind of both of those groups represented in our survey. And I, I think for the last few years, we've been thinking about this as an awareness issue, but I think now it's, it's really more, you know, people are looking for solutions. It occurred to me that I guess the different districts with the Federal Reserve System, you, you, you guys are somewhat independent in what you guys research, but is there any other district that has a, doing the climate risk work that you're doing? Because it would be fascinating to me that you, your survey, the exact same survey, um, maybe you're already doing this, Like, because I'm from the Southeast and the Southeast doesn't necessarily prioritize a lot of the climate change work. But the Federal Reserve District there would do the exact same survey that you did and the different groups there and just the comparison of climate awareness and climate risk. I mean, is there any efforts underway for that or is it you guys are just focused on your district? We are independent, but we do talk to each other, at least across the community development space and the particularly the community development research space. And I think it is more early days in some ways for for other districts, but I think there's longer standing work even than, than our work on climate on disaster resilience and disaster recovery across the system. And particularly looking at a small business disaster recovery is something that the New York Fed has uh, led on. And they've also been leading on, you know, how the solar industry relates to community development. But I think in Dallas or Atlanta, you know, they've been looking for a long time at disaster recovery. And I, I wouldn't be surprised to see kind of more emerging research on adaptation and resilience or even kind of a version of the survey we did come out in some other regions in, in the coming years. One of the points I want to highlight that you asked about is it seemed like a unit 
universal answer that groups are giving is that they have a lack of resources to address these issues. And how do you, when you get those respondents back, because I, I have a long career in nonprofit work, I've worked overseas, and it seems like you go to any meeting, any anywhere that going around the round table, what's your kind of your biggest problem? And it's the lack of resources. So it doesn't even have to be climate change. It's just, there you go. It's a, it's a sector that's always saying, we need more money to do what we're doing. So how do you parse into that feedback to sort of say, all right, well, we know you need more resources, but how how does that reflect your ability to address climate risk? I hope I'm a- asking that right, because to me, for them to say lack of resource, it's not really giving you much information. Yeah. And I, I totally understand that. And I think, you know, that, that's always going to be the response is that there's a, a lack of funding. And you know, indeed, when we asked people, you know, what's the biggest holdup to your work here? Like, obviously, funding came to the top. And then also this idea that we were talking about of, of people have basic needs. You know, there's Federal Reserve research that suggests that most Americans would need to borrow or sell something to cover an unexpected $400 expense. And And you can imagine, you know, that if you have to evacuate for a week or you have damage to your home because of a fire or you have a loss of income because businesses were shut down during an emergency or just your utility bills are increasing over time because of an increasing number of high heat days, that those kinds of financial issues are going to become front of mind. I think it's not just funding. I think, you know, people had more nuanced answers and, and, you know, we prompted them here, but then it seemed to resonate and especially in their comments. It's not just about funding. It's about things like collaboration and about capacity. There's a, a especially in smaller and, and rural places that, that particularly need adaptation funding. There's just a lack of capacity and say in the public sector to even apply for competitive grants. Sometimes, you know, folks were telling us about funding sources. There's just a lack of applicability. You can imagine, you know, grants for for particular types of, of adaptation activities and you're sitting there in Alaska and you're like, we're dealing with village relocation due to permafrost melt. And most funding sources do not have that in, in the headline. They told us in their comments about siloed sources of funding. It takes extra capacity to cobble together different funding sources to kind of accomplish an overall adaptation picture. Or there's just a lack of funding for building out nonprofit capacity, which can often, you know, be the difference between successful program implementation and, you know, meaningful community engagement. And there, one of the results that, that we found was in terms of what kinds of collaboration is going on in communities, folks pointed out there isn't a lot of collaboration coming from financial institutions, whether it's the, the nonprofit or for-profit, you know, CDFIs and banks. I think they're not aware of this as much as an issue that they, they could be involved in. You're right. It's not very helpful to just say that there's a lack of funding, but hopefully we can lift up some examples of where folks have been able to, to leverage funding or issues to be aware of as new sources of funding come down. Having flashbacks of being at those meetings and just hearing that same response. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> All right. I want to talk a little bit more about the survey, but I want to move on to some other subjects. But that, what do you do with this information now? You obviously got it back. I'm sure you're just like, All right, I have to dig into this. But how do you make this information relevant, I guess, to your community development partners? Like, in, I guess, coming on podcasts and talking about it. But what, what sort of happens now? 
Yeah, the next phase for our team in community development at the SF Fed, taking these survey results is we're doing it over, you know, the coming year, we're doing a series of industry focus groups within the community development field. We have one coming up with CDFIs and we're going to be looking at organizing one with folks um, who are focused on workforce development. But we held one in the fall with affordable housing developers and, you know, asking them, what are the issues for you around climate risk in marginalized communities and how is climate risk impacting the way you do your work? And, you know, it was, it was an interesting conversation where they're saying, we obviously want to make the new low-income housing units, subsidized affordable housing units that we're building, resilient and energy efficient, just you know, to save folks money and because it's the right thing to do. You know, current way the system is set up is the low-income housing tax credit or the LIHTC program in states, you know, say like California, there are cost per unit rules that you you, you get more points for having a lower cost per unit. But of course, you have these adaptation measures that add to the cost of housing production. So that's an example of something that we've been hearing and that we're puzzling on with folks in that industry. There's also, we're interested in, you know, in the communities we work in, looking at how are folks figuring out how to do investment without displacement. You know, one of the things we learned from the Spark experience is, you know, if you have adapters out there working on planting street trees and making parks more accessible and building regional trail systems and that double as, you know, kind of floodplain protection stuff, what are you also doing to reach out to the folks who either build or preserve subsidized affordable housing and the folks who work on tenant protection issues and anti-displacement issues to make sure that, you know, as we are encouraging people to get more involved in adaptation and resilience measures for communities, that as those, you know, perhaps make communities more attractive, that they don't further marginalize people who already have a hard time uh, affording to live places. So those are kind of some of the groups that we're talking to and some of the issues that we're chewing on. This is some language I actually got from the report, and I, it, just tell me if you don't recall it specifically, but it, you've probably heard a variation of it, is federal investment in infrastructure and other measures that mitigate disaster impacts on safety and property can save six or more dollars in recovery spending for every dollar spent, while at the same time creating jobs and supporting local economies. And so I know the Fed Reserve, now I know, is like it's an army of economists. They, they think about these things. They, they put these numbers out. <laughs> that is very compelling. And yet I see that all the time. And it seems like it very rarely kind of penetrates. And you're not here to prescribe policy. I get it. I'm, I'm not putting you on the spot for that. But when you have this kind of information, do people, these economists actually believe this? Because it seems like it'd be a no-brainer for local governments, business, everyone to say, we are going to do these investments because it's saving us money. And yet it's still so hard. Is that sort of one of those cases that you have to make within the community development? Are there like, are people receptive to that? Well, in community development, we have a more outward-facing role. We're kind of separate from the economic research that feeds into monetary policy. So, you know, it's, we're an army of economists and then a handful of 
planners and sociologists mm-hmm. and uh, <laughs> others who focus on on community development work. So I think when we're trying to change the conversation in the field, if you will, our audience in community development is more outward in terms of who we're bringing data to. And, you know, sometimes that's uh, translating academic research. Sometimes it's just making, there's good data out there on climate risk and climate vulnerability, but is it accessible to these very busy, very hardworking CRA officers, community development folks at nonprofit? Profits, do they have access to that? And is it being translated in a way that, that they can actually use? So that's, I think, where our energy goes in community development. Yeah, I'm putting you on the spot of like what I want to hear. I think of like an insurance company and they have all sorts of, you know, statisticians looking at like this age group has this behavior and it's going to cost this much when we think of car crashes and that. And so they make sort of rate decisions based on concrete numbers. And it's just, it's all very logical and there's triggers. And it's just, well, when I see something like that, why aren't we making those sort of same decisions? And I just going back to what you do is like getting back and when you're engaging with community development groups that they have the reliability of this is what the economists really believe. And so we're going to make policy decisions. And so that sort of disconnect between what some people are saying versus actually on the ground outcomes for it must be frustrating. I don't know what I'm saying to you. I'm just like, there you go. There's your evidence. Your economists are sort of saying they're making this point for you. And it seems like it'd be easy to kind of make these policy decisions, but I guess that becomes a political decision and that's where it gets tricky. Yeah. (laughs) I think we definitely stay out of politics. We are not caught up in the, whatever the current legislative cycle is. I mean, I, I guess maybe that some of the research that goes on at the Fed is going on at like 50,000 feet and we're at 20,000 feet in community development. So, you know, I think everyone who's a researcher at the Fed is is working on figuring out what is the data that, that goes into understanding how policy decisions are made and how the economy works and how marginalized communities are impacted by bigger level decisions. You know, how's that going to impact their ability to get a job, to have stable prices and full employment, which is our mandate. But I guess in community development, we're more focused on this this particular industry and how it helps people fully participate in the economy. So I'm going to pivot a little bit, hopefully get in safer ground here. And even though this is a little bit of politics, but there's these recent things and you're familiar with Jesse Keenan. We did these federal adaptation action plan episodes where we dug into what those were doing. There's talk now developing national adaptation plan. You're not there to offer an opinion. Should they do that or not? But it is like with the action plans that are out there now, do you find that that's relevant to what you're trying to do when you're engaging with your stakeholders and what you're doing with community development. It's like, it's now a framework that the government is thinking around adaptation. Is it useful to you? And are you, do you communicate with some of these government people just, you know, I guess more off the record are these people that you interact with because now there's a whole adaptation apparatus that's developing within the, you know, the executive branch. Yeah, we again, we don't advocate for particular policies and we don't get involved when on the the legislative side of things when when those are being hammered out. But what we do is we work with folks in the community development field who are trying to figure out what sources of funding are coming down that are new 
and how they can work together on implementation of those adaptation funding sources. So just for example, there is $3.5 billion in the recently passed infrastructure bill for the Department of Energy's weatherization assistance program for low-income uh, homeowners and renters. One of the things that, that I discussed in kind of um, in the report is this idea that there are a lot of adjacent costs that are involved in weatherization. And I think just reading probably the same sources you are from DOE, I think they're trying to, even since I wrote the report and, and pointed out that, that that's a challenge, I think they're trying to address that by perhaps having some future weatherization funding address things like electrical panel replacement or higher cost repairs, perhaps, you know, to people's roofs and getting more involved in some of those higher cost um, weatherization repairs to multifamily homes or to manufactured homes. There's this issue in the community development field of the weatherization program has always had a net savings requirement. And I think there's interest in, you know, addressing that either through the program or through other sources of funding to make sure that as you weatherize someone's home that maybe can't afford to do the other kind of surrounding work that you might want to do? Are you making sure you ventilate when you insulate so that you don't end up with increasing the health hazards from mold? There's one thing I pointed out in the report is there's a program in Oregon called the Healthy Homes Repair Fund. It's a $10 million program for low-income renters and homeowners, and it's covering some of those costs that are not going to pay for themselves. You know, like weatherization work, that's the idea and that's a good thing that it reduces people's costs. But there's a lot of things that are adaptive measures that are really important to low-income people's finances and their, you know, their thermal safety. Just a, a term that I learned from Lad Keith on your show. <laughs> air conditioning, fire hardening, duct sealing for smoke, purchasing air purifiers, doing mold abatement. Those are the kind of adaptive measures that are not going to pay for themselves over time in terms of someone's cost savings in the home. So it, it's interesting to us in community development to puzzle out when you have these new funding sources coming down, how is that actually going to work on the ground and what are some of the different solutions that people are exploring? And what are the things that, that we need to be doing to, to protect consumers? There's a great report out of Berkeley that I cite in the survey report about you know the experience that some low-income homeowners have had with the, the PACE program, the Property Assessed Clean Energy Program, where you have contractors who might be motivated to put in the adaptation measure that they can bill the most for, but isn't going to actually save the homeowner as much money over time. So I think it's both how do we protect people, low-income consumers who probably, you know, don't have a lot of time to screen contractors? And then how do we also pay for those things that may be important to health and to safety, but don't don't pay for themselves? There's a lot of different angles if you think about, you know, what's, well, great, there's a lot of new funding coming down for adaptation, but how do we protect consumers? How do we pay for the things that are necessary health and safety measures that don't necessarily fit within existing programs? We've talked about the survey. That's fantastic. I encourage people. I'll have links to all. You have different kind of resources that are available that people can dig into what you've done there. I'm curious now that you 
you do this work, you know, you start on the mitigation side, you're now fully in the adaptation resilience space. How do you keep up with with the adaptation? You know, I, I don't know if you consider yourself an adaptation professional. Do you go to conferences? How you, I mean, you had Jesse come in, that was probably a great learning experience, but how are you kind of staying involved with the space because you didn't necessarily get a degree in adaptation? Yeah, that's a great question. And I guess I consider myself an adaptation researcher. I The word professional, I think of as the people doing the hard work on the ground to actually implement these measures. Maybe that's a little bit too harsh, but definitely squarely in the adaptation research space. And it was definitely a great learning experience to work with Jesse. But also, you know, I, I feel like I learn the most from the people that we come in contact with through our work in community development. And even on the research side, I get to be part of some of the engagement work or listen in. So, you know, when I hear folks from CDFIs talking about, okay, how do they figure out how to do a solar loan and make that work for a low-income homeowner or renter? And how do they get the nuts and bolts of that to work? And then how do they try to fit that potentially into a Community Reinvestment Act context? That's where I do most of the learning about the nuts and bolts of adaptation is, you know, through my own outreach to people, you know, doing interviews for research. And there's, you know, just a lot of great organizations, mostly interacting with folks on the West Coast. But I learn from people like, you know, the Greenlining Institute. They do a lot of work on the ground. Um, in communities in California through the Transformative Climate Communities Program. There's a great organization in the area called All Home that is basically working to make sure that people who are in the very lowest income groups don't fall off the housing ladder and become homeless. And they're also trying to address the kind of structural housing issues that are creating issues with new and existing unhoused populations, you know, not just in the the big cities, but places that have become you know, rapidly unaffordable as people move to different places during the pandemic or just the you know, structural housing shortage continues to ripple out to different smaller and smaller regions. I learned mostly from people in the field, but also, you know, as I consider myself a a planning person, I go to planning conference every year or every couple years, ACSP, the American Collegiate Schools of Planning. There's a lot of folks who've come on your podcast, planners who give talks on the kind of climate or adaptation track at that conference. So yeah, and I listen to the show. So <laughs> that's where I get most of my information. Well, thank you. No, that that's great. I think that was a great example of just people on the ground and such. And, you know, I am encouraging sort of this adaptation space that it's more cohesive. And so anytime you can be a spokesperson for what you're doing, that that's fantastic. And you describe yourself as an adaptation researcher. And to be honest, I've been in the space a long time, but I never even occurred to me like adaptation research. I just thought it was such a new emerging area. And when I first met Jesse, been four or five years now, and he was doing academic adaptation. I'm like, wow, people are actually doing this particular thing. This is fantastic. So definitely appreciate the the area you're in. I think it'll probably just be growing a ton. And just if I could say to you, you're doing a lot of outreach. I know you do webinars. You've mentioned Lad and Lori, you've interacted with them, but I think a lot of people could benefit from your expertise and the work that you're doing. And I'm not quite sure how you get to meet more people or they get to engage more with you, but I think they could benefit from it. So anyway, you can just, yeah, keep even, and this is nationally, I know you work on the West Coast, but I think a lot nationally would really be interested in what you're doing. So yeah, stay by you. We had this conversation, you know, there'll certainly be some exposure there, but yeah, keep that there because I think a lot of people could benefit. 
All right. Before we wrap up here, are there any particular resources that you could share with my listeners? Sure. So, you know, if you are interested in reading our report or other work we've done in the past in community development or hearing about upcoming events, we're at frbsf.org. That's frbsf.org. And I think it's forward slash community development, but you can also just find us from the San Francisco Fed's homepage. And if you're on your phone and the show notes, I'll have a whole bunch of these links that you can click to. So it'll be easy to get to that. Fantastic. All right, Lizzie, this has been great. You are doing important work. I need to ask you one last question before we wrap this up. If you could recommend one guest to come on the podcast, who would it be? Well, I already plugged a couple of organizations that I think folks should check out. I know Emmy Wang at Greenlining is doing great work on the TCC program in California. Tamika Moss at All Home helping address housing issues and homelessness issues. But also, if I could recommend one person to come on the show, Michael Mendez is a professor at UC Irvine, and he has been doing great work on how climate impacts farm worker communities, undocumented communities. I know you've done an episode on that and also how it impacts vulnerable LGBTQ community folks. So I know those are issues that you've covered, but he is really wonderful and, and covers them from an interesting angle. So, um, and he's also written an entire book on California climate politics. So I would have Mike Mendez on. Great recommendation. And, you know, I'm going to cover the same subjects over and over again, just because there's different angles, different people, different experiences. And so that's never an issue. And you know him? Do you, you, you maybe a potential connection? Oh, yeah. I can introduce you guys. Fabulous. We were both in the PhD program in planning at Berkeley at the same time. So Mike's a friend. Great. All right. This has been fantastic, Lizzie. Like I said before, you're doing important work. I encourage my listeners to go check these things out because this is sort of what are people thinking out there? What are the resources that they need? How can you engage with them? And this is just critical research that is going to be, you know, in the years ahead, figuring out how we do adaptation right. So thanks for what you're doing and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Doug. This was really fun. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. Thanks to Dr. Elizabeth Matuti for joining the podcast. Definitely check out her research. I have multiple links in my show notes. Practitioners have taken the lead in the adaptation space, and it's encouraging to see researchers starting to fill in gaps or just providing baseline information for people to use. There's been a winging it element to resilience and adaptation work, and quite frankly, there still is. And we're seeing a maturing of the adaptation sector when academic researchers come in and start understanding and sharing what's going on. As we discussed in our conversation, this research was just focused on some Western states. I would love to see similar research for all the districts in the Federal Reserve System. Yeah, I'm looking at you, Southeast. I also encourage you to reach out to Lizzie if you're doing similar on-the-ground work and give her feedback on what types of research would be useful to you. Thanks again, Lizzie, for joining the podcast. Okay, don't forget to check out Wondrium, the streaming service where you can watch or listen to lectures, programs, and courses. There's a free two-week trial. Use the link they generated for this podcast, wondrium.com slash adapts. Check it out. In fact, right now, click the link in the show notes. Okay, I'm hearing from listeners that they have started listening to the podcast in the last few months or the last year, and that means they have missed out on a bountiful archive if they haven't poked around at 
previous episodes. So I'm going to dig in the vault when I can and highlight two previous episodes in case you need some recommendations. In episode 128, I host Dr. Carolyn Kuski, the executive director at the Wharton Risk Management and Decision Processes Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Carolyn has developed eight recommendations for the incoming Biden administration to prioritize climate adaptation. We go through each of the recommendations, which cover topics ranging from disaster preparedness, strengthening our infrastructure, to utilizing nature-based approaches to adaptation. So I'm sharing this one. Obviously, it's a bit dated, but you can compare it with the federal adaptation action plans that came out, see where Carolyn got it right, and if the federal government was listening. And so it'd be an interesting exercise to sort of see what they have done. And in episode 118, I host Maxine Burkett, a professor of law at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. In this episode, we discuss the moral and intellectual case for climate reparations, climate migration, differences in climate justice in the global north and south, will adaptation take a peaceful or conflict-oriented approach in the years ahead, and adaptation studies at the University of Hawaii. So definitely check out the archive. Okay, you hear me talk about this all the time, and I will continue. If you're interested in highlighting your adaptation work in a podcast, consider sponsoring a whole episode of America Apps. Sponsoring allows you to focus on the work you're doing and sharing with climate professionals from around the world. I frequently go on location and record these sponsored podcasts, which allows you a wider diversity of guests to participate. You'll work with me to identify experts that represent the work that you are doing. I've done these with UPenn Wharton, WWF, Harvard, UCLA, NRDC, some corporate clients, it's a chance to share your story with all my listeners who represent the most influential people in the adaptation space. Most projects have communications written into them. Consider budgeting in a podcast. Podcasts have a long shelf life, much more so than a white paper or conference presentation. Many groups work into their communication strategies. Anyone from a foundation listening to this? All right, this is for you. Previous sponsors have used the podcast to communicate with their own members, board members, and even funders. My previous sponsors have found the process actually pretty fun since there is a lot of creativity involved. Putting a podcast together is a lot more exciting and satisfying than putting a paper together. Trust me on that. Please reach out. Let's have a conversation. Also, if you're interested in having me speak at a public or corporate event virtually or in person, please reach out. Folks, I speak to a lot of groups. I talk about the podcast. I talk about my own experiences in adaptation. I will talk about adaptation in ways that will motivate you and inspire you. Check out the website, americadapts.org. Also, for my regular listeners, podcasts rely on word of mouth. Please take a moment and plug America Adapts on your favorite social media feeds. I'm on all of them. And retweet at me so I can retweet what you did. That's how it all works. And on that note, I love hearing from you guys. Please email me. I hear frequently from listeners and they tell me what they're doing. And occasionally we even have a conversation. We'll get on Zoom and I'll catch up on what they're doing. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. It is the highlight of my week hearing from you guys. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Helps me figure out who's listening to the podcast. And I'd like to make connections too. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.